check, make them little money, pay some bills. This week on the Pete the Planner Show, we answer your money questions. Here's how the show works. You email us, askpete at petetheplanner.com. That's askpete at petetheplanner.com, and I will... There's a pretty good chance I'll ignore your email. I don't know. I just feels like honesty is important these days. No, I I, I will answer you. Uh, generally on the radio show, sometimes in my USA Today column, sometimes in a different column. And today, my co-host with the most, Damian Dunn joins me from Northern Indiana, VP of Advice at Your Money Line and Hey Money. Hello, Dame. Hey, Pete. We are taking one of those emails today. Actually, this came as a Twitter DM. Someone slid into the DMs and asked me this question. And so I, I think it's great. Of course, I'm going to withhold names and I'm also going to withhold business names because, well, it's that sort of uh, question. Hey, Pete, hope you're doing well. Your kids are getting so big. Quick question for you. What? It's a friend. <laughs> That's pertinent. Well, I mean, they are. They're giant. My daughter's a muscle hamster. Like, she's just like this muscly. She can take down anyone in the house. And, you know, Ted's got big hair. Uh, I send everyone uh, a quick question. Um, anyway, uh, I switched jobs. I'm now working somewhere else. I have a retirement account from my last job with a financial company. My new job also uses that financial company. However, I got a call from that financial company today, and they want me to do a rollover of my old account into an IRA but I with them, but I thought it would make more sense to take that old account with the financial company and put it into my new 401k with the financial company, but they're trying to get me to put it into an IRA instead. Does it really matter? What would you do? Dame, I, I'm upset. Oh? Yeah, I, I, I see what's happening here. Please tell us. Oh, do you not see what's happening here? I was hoping you would see what's happening here too. And then you could explain it and I could have a drink of water. Okay, I can do that. So yeah. the answer here is sadly, maybe they should do that. I, I hate hedging on something like this. Maybe they should do, you should do that. What do you mean do that? What is that? Is, maybe they should put it into an IRA. Maybe. Okay. Why do you say that? Couple The biggest options that people are going to struggle with or, or would cause them to move it from a 401k into an IRA are going to be fees that are associated with the, four, the current 401k plan that their money is in or the one they are moving to. If they can get a better deal, i.e. less expense in the IRA, that may be worth their time. The other one's going to be investment options that are available to you in the old or new 401ks. If there's nothing there that really helps you reach those long-term goals, IRAs are wide open. You can choose from thousands of, of investments to build that portfolio that's custom just for you and will help you get to where you need to go. The downside, well, somebody may be getting paid that wouldn't normally be getting paid as much as they would if, if you went from 401k to 401k. So is there a monetary reason that somebody reached out to you to get you to potentially move into an IRA versus your new employer's 401k? I would say the chances are very good. Well, uh, so I'm going to create a little hootenanny here and just take the second view and, and just adopt it as the view, because I think it is very unlikely that someone is able to get lower fees going to an IRA from a 401k from a large employer. Uh, because 
when you have a large employer who has a 401k, they buy their investments, so to speak, in bulk, and you're going to get much lower fees. And if you're an individual investor, then you have to pay retail fees, which are always higher than institutional fees. And I think this is 100% a money grab from the company because there's a very, very small chance, like 2% chance, I made that number up, 2% chance that the fees are lower in the IRA. And I would also say most people don't need more investment options. They, they, they just don't, right? And, and so this person is um, your average investor. They likely kind of know what they have in their account, but they didn't necessarily choose them. It sort of got tripped into that situation. So yeah, I, I'm going to actually take a real hard stance on this. They have to absolutely put it into the new 401k because it's going to be a lot cheaper and it uh, it will keep them organized too. Dame, why do you want multiple account statements from the exact same company? That would be a little confusing, but I'm going to push back a little bit. Let's do it. Have you looked at lots of companies 401ks now in here's what's yes. important. It, 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 what's important in defense of me i don't think you said large company when when this was all shaking out so it could have been okay. a small company that didn't get those uh, cost advantages for their 401k i've seen some smaller 401ks that are loaded up with fees and not very uh, attractive for the employees themselves the main reason to invest there is to get the free money with the match. Would you agree with that, Mister Dunn? I don't know. You don't I know. Did, of course, I did. Course I, I did bury the lead here. He did get back to me after I answered the question. He asked the guy if the fees were the, uh, well, how the fees were different, and the guy simply answered, "They're about the same." Dame, about the same is not the same. Because five basis points, <laughs> 0.05, yeah. is a big difference when it's all said and done, decades with hundreds of thousands of dollars on the line. I'm telling you, any financial expert that says they're about the same and leaves it at that and doesn't tell you what they are. And by the way, I'm not saying the person that works for that company is a financial expert. They're a financial services representative. Then there's a reason why they're so vague. Was it a, just a, a cold call out of the blue from the, the financial services company saying, hey, we noticed uh, this is going on. Why don't you move it to an IRA? Well, it's not a well, it's a cold call in the sense it was a cold call to my friend. But, you know, that's part of their business operations that a, a person leaves a company and they get on the line and try to retain the business. And the person didn't know that it was just going to their own company, right? They sure. they, they don't know yeah. who the new 401k provider is. But once my friend told them that, the person should just back off. But unfortunately, they've got their own sales goals and that creates issues for me. Interesting. And them. Yeah, I, there's a big conflict there for sure. But it, whether it was a, a big company or just a, a individual financial advisor, they're going to do whatever they can to retain the assets because that's a very good likelihood of how they're getting paid. So I, as distasteful as it seems to us, that's just the way the world works and you should expect it. I have no problem with people rolling over IRAs or into IRAs, rolling over 401ks into IRAs. I, I think it can make some sense, but here's what you need to get out of it. A, you have to value the advice you're getting from the advisor if you have an advisor on that IRA. B, if you don't have an advisor and you're just doing it direct, then you got to either hope for like Dame said, better investment options, lower fees, and that has to be lower net fees. 
right? Because what we can't have happen is a person roll over their money into the IRA for better investment options with a better chance of return, but the advisor fees are so high that it nets them down and they're they're earning below what the fees would have been on the other account. So I think sometimes, Dame, when you've got really like a really great 401k with a really great investment company with really low fees and you're happy with the target date fund that you have, or you're happy with some broad index fund that you have. I mean, an IRA, it doesn't make that much sense to me, right? Just leave it where it's at. Yeah. You'd really have to get something out of the relationship with the advisor, which by the way, the big companies are starting to bring in their own solution to that, bringing in advisors to help you uh, make those decisions. So it's going to muddy the waters even quicker. The individual advisor who can help you with the IRA or stick with the big company who can provide most of the same services for you. I am not anti-advisor. You and I are both very pro-advisors as former advisors and people who work with advisors all the time. But that advisor needs to bring something to the table other than just putting you in the same index fund that you were likely in. Anyway, all right, Dame, coming up after the break, will this horrific financial time change Americans' financial sensibility for good? We'll discuss that impossible question to answer next on The Pete the Planner Show. Back on The Pete the Planner Show, some fun and frivolity during the break. But you know what? We're just going to stick to finance during the show here. Damian Dunn joins me. Uh, most of the time. Dame, uh, so this week's Indianapolis Business Journal column, well, uh, you know, I kind of got on a soapbox a little bit. And so I want to share those thoughts with you. And and what I would like to extend an offer to you to do is to beat up my idea. Fair enough. You always have that invitation. But I frankly, I think the show is better when we, di- when we disagree. And I don't want to be one of those shows that manufactures disagreement. Like, I have no interest in that. But so growing up, I, my grandpa always, grandpa Dunn always used to tell me that, you know, as a child of the great depression, he learned to make do with what they had and nothing more, right? He, he never wanted for anything. He didn't even, you know, get in the climb the ladder thing. He just was a very sensible, prudent person, which is, I, I think the reputation of the greatest generation. He went on to fight in World War II um, after going up in the Depression, was stranded on the beach of Iwo Jima uh, with another soldier and were, were sort of lampooned overnight. And then they wow. had to find their way to a ship and leave. And And I'll have to tell you, it really changed. It changed who he was moving forward. I mean, this Damien was prior to PTSD being a thing. But I think if you're stranded on a beach in a war overnight with another soldier, it changes your life. And it certainly changed his life. But he's a very sensible guy. And and, and look, um, you, you know me and you know how I feel about him. He, he's like my favorite person in the world. He taught me about money specifically. Uh, he had a Pringles can <laughs> on his desk in his home office that had all his change in it. So uh, when he passed away, my grandma gave me that Pringles can. I have his change. It means a lot to me. And as I think about what we're all going through right now and the sensibility of the greatest generation, where you're forced to stop looking for what's next, you know, and, and you're not the sort of person, the greatest generation is not the sort of person 
that has a bumper sticker on their back of the car, like one I saw the other day that said never satisfied. I mean, they would laugh in the face of that idea. And so I think it's quite possible that there's a sensibility reckoning in America as it relates to consumerism and materialism and stability altogether. Now, I hope that happens. It's possible. I'm not holding my breath, but our financial habits have gotten markedly worse decade after decade after decade, year after year after year. And, and Dame, we're getting to an ugly and uglier and uglier place to the point is I'm not sure we can come back from our addiction to a comfortable lifestyle and, and regain that prudence that the greatest generation set up for us. I hope you're right as far as what you wrote about or what you've identified that, that this will be a reckoning and we will change. I, like you, doubt that's going to be the case. Uh, we have very comfortable lifestyles. Most of us have very comfortable lifestyles that we have uh, grown up in and that we are raising kids in. And it just becomes ingrained in their lifestyle. When our kids, I'm speaking about Pete and I, our kids are roughly the same age. When they graduate from college, they're going to have an expected lifestyle where they don't have a, time, a period of struggle, where they, they live very thin and they do whatever they can to try and put food on the table um, and, and pay the bills and, and whatever that may be. The chances of them going through a period like that are probably smaller than they should be, if I'm being perfectly honest. I think periods like that are very um, uh, transformative for people and very informing of how they choose to live their lives going forward. And our kids, and most kids, I think, that that probably are, um, I was going to say listening to the show, but no kids are listening to the show. <laughs> Jameson's uh, kids listening yeah, Jameson's to the show. Jameson's kids listening to the I don't think kids, uh, in the majority of families today are going to face deals like that or situations like that. They're going to graduate or move on out of high school with that expected lifestyle and they're going to do whatever they can to attain it. And that may mean taking on way more debt than they should early in life. And if you compound that with student loans, that hill gets even higher to climb and they're going to struggle and they're going to be frustrated and they're going to wonder what in the heck is going on. And they're going to look outside of themselves for solutions because that's what we do now. We try and solve our kids' problems. I point the finger at me just as much as maybe anybody else, but I don't let my kids struggle enough, and that's something that I know I need to look forward to. And this just became a really awkward personal confession segment on the Pete the Planner show. Well, that's what it is. I mean, because here's the thing. I, I struggle with this too. I, I, I don't have the greatest sensibility in the world. I think it's pretty good when it comes to money and need of it. I have material wants and desires. I'll just say this. My grandparents um, had one home in which they raised their kids and their grandkids. And I'm one of their grandkids. I've had three homes and I'm not old enough to be a grandparent. You know, uh, they just called their home a home. My wife and I have called our homes a, a starter, starter home a transition home, a family home, and we're likely to have an empty nester home or a forever home. You know, my grandparents vacationed when it made sense. We vacation every year and we don't think about whether it makes sense or not. But we, of course, we put ourselves on that path of stability. I think, and I sound old, like old man McGrapey, I think 
we have to press reset on our financial sensibility. And, and I think that was the catalyst to financial literacy becoming a thing 15 to 20 years ago. I think that's what people were hoping for. And, and it sort of evolved into financial well-being. But Dame, we're in a dangerous place. I know a lot of people are hurting right now financially, but there's also a lot of people who aren't that need to take this opportunity to press reset on their finances. Taking a serious in-depth look at what your priorities are and how you fund them is never a bad idea. And maybe the things that you're spending money on don't really care, don't really matter to you all that much anymore. Maybe they shouldn't matter to you all that much anymore. And I'm speaking to myself specifically in this case. Um, the the amount of money that I'm sure I, I'll say it uh, that I waste each month is probably staggering. And I, it's just because it's become an ingrained part of my normal monthly spending and I can afford it. And so I do it when I could be using that money for much better purposes. So yeah, a reset, a, just a clean start, question everything would be yeah. tremendously beneficial uh, to me and probably a lot of other people. You know, we're going to talk about it in the next segment, but I think, and I was talking to a friend today, I think the next big crisis in America is going to be homelessness as it relates to this situation. You know, we're going to cover um, the eviction moratorium in the next segment, not because necessarily our listenership is affected by it, although I'm sure they are to some degree, but there's something buried in the eviction moratorium that, that is going to tell us that January 1st of 2021 could be one of the roughest days in American history based on how this moratorium is written by the CDC. So we'll we'll cover that. So, yeah, Dame, I don't know. I, maybe I'm just waxing poetic about my grandparents thinking about them a lot. And by the way, my grandma still lives in that home, <laughs> right? Um, but I just... I saw a piece of news this week that just that made me laugh because I wrote a blog post about it about 10 years ago. In some capacity, I think the decline of human sensibility as it relates to money happened when Cribs debuted 20 years ago on MTV. Yeah. And so this week is the 20th anniversary of Cribs. And I loved that show so much so that my favorite part, because I'm a dummy, is when they would open the refrigerator and you would just see rows of whatever they drank. Just And so then our fridge, when I was young and dumb in my early 20s, we had like a Cribs fridge with just different types of drinks in it. And it was just like, is that not the decline? Just, hey, look at my house, everybody. And it's just like, it didn't even make any sense. Coming up after the break, we're going to talk to the eviction moratorium here on the Pete the Planner Show. Back on the Pete the Planner show. Uh, I, just as I go to uh, start the segment, I felt something on my neck. I didn't know if a bug had crawled on me. You know what? It appears it could have been. You never know. Hey, everybody. Back on the radio show here. Damian Dunn joining me. Uh, so, Dame, September 4th, Friday, September 4th, the CDC put into effect an eviction moratorium. And we need to talk about it because, man, my man, it has got some layers. Uh, do you know much about it? I'm sure you've read the stories, but I'm just curious. What, what do you know about it? So let's start with what you know, and I'll, I'll go from there. Superficial stuff for the most part. I know that um, it is prohibiting uh, 
landlords from evicting uh, their tenants until, you know, well, January 1st. Technically, I'll probably play out to January 2nd, I would imagine, for the, the paperwork to go through. Um, and it's buying them some much needed time. There could be some criminal penalties if they try and go forward with any evictions from people who have demonstrated, gone through all the steps that uh, they need to, you know, showing the uh, the impact of the coronavirus, and uh, I think maybe two other uh, components to to showing genuine need to stay needing to stay in their home. And the CDC did it uh, not only to keep people in their homes, but to try and minimize the amount of people out and about uh, potentially transmitting the virus uh, during that time period. So they they did it not only to um, be sensitive to people who are having a rough time, but for health reasons as well. Yeah, that's, you know, you're, you're 95% of the way there. And it's, it's the nuance that you either chose to left, leave out or that you left out that is where it gets pretty fascinating. So number one, um, the CDC did this as a medical move. This is not a financial decision. So they did it to prevent the spread of the virus. So if people were out of their homes or if people are homeless shelter, have to go stay with relatives, that's where they do it. It has no financial teeth at all. And what it's it would allow someone to do, like Dame says, they have to be able to attest to the fact that they've lost their job or have been financially damaged by this time. They have to qualify for the income requirements, which means if you're a single earner, it's $99,000 or less. Or if you're a joint filer, it's $198,000 or less. And then you print off a certificate from the CDC website that is a declaration that you hand to your landlord that you've signed that says you're in this situation and your landlord, whether it's a big, large organization or a mom and pop, has to let you stay. However, there's some really weird stuff with this. First off, that means the landlord can't get any money out of you, right? They say you have to make your best effort to pay, but that's so subjective. If you've sure. lost your job and you have no income, what are you going to do? You're going to put food on your table or you're going to pay somebody you don't have to pay? Right. Uh, so, Dame, this is where it gets weird, right? Because the landlord uh, takes the burden of this. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of mom and pop landlords that use the rent payments to pay the mortgage on the rental property. So then, theoretically... If they get behind over the next few months, or maybe they're already behind because this eviction moratorium hadn't been in place and so they were just letting them stay, guess what, Dame? They're going to get foreclosed upon and this is going to happen anyway. Yeah, without some protection for the um, the owners of the rentals, this could go sideways really quick. Now, I don't know how quickly that process would happen, the eviction process, because they get, they get foreclosed upon. I don't think it would be until probably after January 1st uh, at this point, it would take a while to get there. But this is um, a good, uh, potentially really good action being taken, but it's going to have some unintended consequences. It could be really tough to deal with because it, it may take a while to get a renter back in there, even if they uh, end up evicting the, the tenant in January. Yeah. So before we go much further, I think you and I both need to express this uh, feeling that, that we likely share. Uh, Tenants and landlords should not be adversaries, hmm. <laughs> but, but it's weird. It's turned into that relationship, even from three's company with uh, Jack Tripper and Mr. Roper, or Mr. Furley. There's always that adversarial relationship between renters and landlords. How about that reference? Wow. That was fantastic. It felt impressive. Um, and I just, 
I, I mean, I've been a landlord. I, I've been a pop landlord and I have had peaceful relationships with renters and I have had an adversarial relationship with one renter. And that's just, unfortunately, the nature of, of the beast. But in these times, Dame, it, it is tough. And so in a perfect world, which I don't know if you checked, but we're not in it, there would actually be money changing hands from a government program to the landlords to make people whole. Because here's what happens on January 1st, 2021, all your rent, it comes due and you have to pay or they can evict you. Now, will they extend the moratorium? I have no idea. But as it stands now, January 1st, 2021, we are going to have mass eviction in this country in the dead of winter. Uh, Dame, I also have to let you know that while you cannot evict someone for non-payment, you can evict them for all sorts of other things during this period, even if they have a declaration on file. Noise complaint, breaking the rules, pet issues. You can kick someone out for all sorts of reasons, but it can't be a reason around non-payment. And the way evictions usually work is there's a natural system, good, bad, or otherwise, where you kick someone out because they can't pay. And then you're able to make yourself whole by re-renting that unit to someone else. That is how it works. That is now broken. This isn't a problem that's going to be able to be fixed with a tax credit or some some other fa fancy accounting trick uh, to try and help the landlords either. And, and, and I don't want this to sound like my concern is necessarily more for the landlords than the renters. It's I, I think it's a, a scale that has considerations on both sides that are equally that are fair. There's no good solution to this. There is, you said people are going to come to a reckoning in January, if not sooner. And we're going to have to see what happens. Uh, there hasn't been anything that's made me think that there's a good way out of this. I, to your point of like, who do you side with? We shouldn't feel like we have to choose sides, but at some point in time, we do have to, we do have to identify the real issues here. I feel bad for the landlords until the end of the year. And then I feel really bad for the renters yeah. because it is going to be a nightmare. And if, if, if these landlords aren't foreclosed upon, what in the world is the rental market going to look like at the beginning of January? To your point, you said you think it would be hard to rent a place. So that also would mean prices would come down. So these people that have not been able to get rent out of people now have to lower their price and they may go upside down as it relates to their cash flow and their mortgage. Yeah, there'll be a glut of supply of rentals that come on in January and early February. Prices will have to come down. That's just how economics works. And if you can't make things mathematically financially figure themselves out and come to terms you're no better off uh, than you you were previously so this is bad situation you and i have been right about uh, several things along the way here as it relates to this crisis and it's because we see inside the financial lives of everyday people every day so we know how this stuff sort of trickles down for what it's worth, I'm calling my shot. I think January is going to be a nightmare in terms of housing. I think in terms of the housing market, I think of 
people who, you know, you know, that we got a great jobs report on mm-hmm. uh, Friday of this week, uh, September 4th. We got a great jobs report. Um, but when 66,000 airline workers lose their job on October 1st, 66, pardon me, 56,000, let's be accurate, 56,000 people lose their jobs so far between two airlines, just two, American and United. Uh, we're going to have, we're going to have some issues. So what am I telling everyone here? Keep valuing stability. Keep valuing stability. Don't fight to get back to the lifestyle you had. Fight to actually stabilize your finances. It's a nuance that will save your financial life. Don't go back to the what was normal. Forget that. Maybe your normal was a bad idea. Yeah, consider that. Your normal may have been a horrible idea. Value stability. And that's how you'll get through this. Coming up after the break, biggest waste of money of the week. In current events, right here on the Pete the Planner Show, I'm Pete the Planner. Back on the Pete the Planner Show, this week's biggest waste of money of the week right here on the Pete the Planner Show is the Notorious Biggs Coney crown worn by Christopher Wallace, a.k.a. the Notorious Big, a.k.a. Biggie Smalls, a.k.a. Big Papa. The iconic King of New York, Coney, K-O-N-Y. That's how that works, Dame. Photo shoot. Uh, there, he did a photo shoot, Biggie Smalls, three days before he died. It was called the King of New York photo shoot. You've seen the picture. You've seen the picture of Biggie Smalls. He's a rapper, for those that don't know. He doesn't have a smile on his face. He looks downtrodden or something. It's I can't tell you the, the emotions he had within him. And then he had a crown on his head, and it was the King of New York shoot. Well, this important piece of hip-hop history is up for sale. The crown has spent the last 23 years in the possession of photographer Baron Claiborne, who created the images and the theme for the shoot. It's inscribed on the interior with crown from Biggie Coney shot, NYC 3697, bears both Wallace's and Claiborne's signatures and will be accompanied in the lot by three 36 by 40 prints from the shoot, as well as the contact sheet when it goes up for sale as part of Sotheby's hip hop auction on September 15th. Dame, there's a lot there, my friend. All right. So you know where we're going with this, right? I think so. How much do you think that costs. I mean, they have an auction estimate. I'm guessing that's what you're you're going for here. To start bidding, bidding starts at a uh, uh, the bidding starts at a certain number, and I want you to tell me. And and by the looks of this thing, which we're looking at on on Facebook Live right now, it looks to be a. I could be wrong. Doesn't that look like a plastic crown you'd buy at Party City for like a kid's birthday party? Yeah, originally I thought you were going to tell me that was the um, the first Burger King crown. It does look like, do you remember those creepy Burger King commercials where the, the king would show up? Yeah. yeah, yeah, that was terrifying. What do you think? Danza says 300,000. Danza, of course, is a Facebook uh, contributor here. Um, Dan, opening, what, do you, what do you think? Opening bid, uh, 100 grand. $200,000. And here's the tough thing about this. It's going to go for a lot more than that, even in this economy. Um. And, you know, from time to time, I will say during the biggest waste of money uh, of the week segment that something is not a waste of money. In fact, it is a good use of money. 
Dame, I'm going to hedge on this one because I think to buy, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, commitment into a, a plastic crown from a hip hop video doesn't make a lot of sense. But as a hip hop head, I have to say this is a pretty cool piece of hip hop history. Sean Combs has to buy this, right? That's a great point. It's part of the auction um, proceeds go to a couple nonprofits in the area, yeah. uh, in the New York area. So maybe, yeah, maybe that's the way it goes. Someone like, uh, I don't know what he goes by. Does he back to either. Sean Combs? It's not Puffy or P. Diddy? No idea. No. It could be, it, Jay-Z could. I mean, there's any number of guys that I think will probably swoop in and, and just snap this up. You think so? I'm going to go a different direction, and we're going to follow up on this. You know, you and I are really good at following up on things from the show weeks later when we've forgotten. It's going to be some tech mogul, some young tech money guy that comes in and buys it. Like that Martin Shkreli guy that jacked up the prices on those drugs that then went to prison. Remember that guy? I do. Elon's going to buy this and send it into space with one of his uh, astronauts and let it orbit a couple times did you see i was gonna make did you see the elon musk story this week where one of his tech companies is a brain implant company yeah the chips in in the the brain yeah okay so i'd heard about it but i didn't know why it existed specifically like what the end purpose is right now they're they attach this mini computer to your brain and then it has bluetooth that you can you know interact with it and it's for right now, they're trying to test it with spinal cord injuries and things like that. But Dame, do you know what the actual end purpose is of that? No, I thought it was going to be for, um, you know, d- diseases or injuries or, or something like that to try and, um, you know, help, help the quality of life for, for people that need it. If, if you tell me this is uh, the Matrix Neo type, I know jujitsu type of stuff, I'm going to just walk off the screen. No, dude, it's it's crazier than that. It's crazier than that. Okay, so I, I learned this this morning and it freaked me out. It is in an effort to prevent artificial intelligence from ending civilization. So what he's, because artificial intelligence, of course, you know, they start to think like humans and and then they could someday ruin us all and kill us all and then the robots take over. I mean, that's the, dystopian terminator terminator Terminator. exactly um so what this is it is basically to turn your brain into a computer so it can essentially make friends with computers so that by linking our brains with computers that will somehow prevent the artificial intelligence invasion that it's going to kill us all i'm sorry i can't do that hal yeah I, I, that's unbelievable. Why is a computer going to be friends with me? They, they don't, it's not artificial emotion. It's artificial intelligence. They don't care. U.S. debt is set to exceed size of the economy next year. A first since World War II. Speaking of World War II. Let's just get all the depressing out of this now. You know, <laughs> Can we just make Danza a third member of the show? She yes. just put, that seems like an unwise alliance. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Dame, um, I, I mean, 
this is not surprising. I, we are definitely with a lot of these headlines. We're into the territory of, yeah, we knew this was coming, but now we got to read the headline that says this says it's going to happen. It's like, hey, all the kids go back to college. Oh, guess what? There's a thousand cases per campus. Yeah. Yeah, I know. So, I mean, it's shocking. I'm sad. I'm upset. I want people to be safe. But I kind of knew that was going to happen in early August. This isn't a surprise. Uh, we we all knew this was, we should have all known this is where it's headed. There's still not enough um, attention being paid to the overall size of the debt, I think. I mean, the, the interest payment alone each year continues to climb. And I got news for the foreseeable next couple of years, we're still going to be in a situation just like this where our uh, expenditures are going to outpace the GDP and it's not really going to be anything we can do about. It really ties into what you and I were uh, slacking about this morning, that based on the jobs report, based on the eviction moratorium, which isn't fully being understood even by people in D.C., I don't think there's going to be another stimulus plan. I, I just don't. And this ties in because, Dame, if there is another stimulus plan, then that debt grows even more. And it grows beyond the GDP even more. Now, some people say that doesn't matter. And I don't really want to get too involved in that other than to say, I don't know how it doesn't matter because eventually we're, we're going <laughs> to, our kids are going to pay for it. It might not matter to us because we'll be dead, but our kids and our grandkids are going to have to deal with that. Dame, I, I, there's not going to be another stimulus plan. I'm, I'm fully convinced at this point. No, things are looking just good enough that they're going to see how things play out. It's weird because so the GOP's strategy was to buy more time to get more data to see if they really needed it. Okay. Good, bad, or otherwise, that was their strategy. And so that kind of worked, right? That that worked. Whether they made the right decision or not, their strategy worked, right? Their strategy was to not do the bill. And that's not judgmental. They didn't want to do the bill or they wanted to do a very, very, very small bill. Mm -hmm. On the other side, I think the Democrats, um, I think had we done another bill, I think a lot of people would be in a better place, but there are other problems that persist. And of course, as we've learned today, there are more problems that would have popped up that we don't even know about that were unintended consequences of the bill. So it's with that that I end the show. God, next week we're, we're doing puppies and, and uh, what else is exciting, Dame? Rainbows, kittens. Yep. Send you good vibes because good vibes are all that's in the budget. This is the Pete the Planner.